Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Imagine your brother or sister goes missing. Foul play is evident. The FBI gets involved, but there's no suspect. There's evidence. Some could still be tested, but it isn't. It hasn't been. You want answers, but you get nothing. 35 years goes by and there still aren't answers. Unfortunately, that's the hell that two families have been going through in this case that we're going to discuss today. Officially, this is a missing persons case, but the evidence tends to suggest that Keith Cole and Cassandra Haley were murdered. The case we're talking about in this episode is the third of four double homicides that took place in relatively close proximity in less than three years, commonly referred to as the Colonial Parkway murders. You don't have to go back and listen to the previous episodes for this one to make sense. Just know that when we make reference to Kathy and Becky or David and Robin, we're talking about the first and second double homicide victims of the Colonial Parkway murders who were featured in the last two shows, episodes four and five respectively. Uh, We're back on the Colonial Parkway. Now it is April 1988, April 10th. It's a week after Easter, but it also happens to be Russian Orthodox Easter. Let's talk a little bit about Richard Keith Call. He was known as Keith. He never went by Richard. That was his dad's name. He went by Keith. So everybody in his family, his friends, that's what they called him. He lived with his folks in a rural area of Virginia near the Colonial Parkway, near the Newport News, Williamsburg, Yorktown area. And the town he lived in is pronounced Gloucester, I believe. It doesn't look like it's pronounced that way, but I have listened to it pronounced by a handful of people who are from there. Hopefully I didn't butcher it. So he's in Gloucester, Virginia. This is east, northeast of Williamsburg on the other side of the York River. To give you an idea of the setting here, in 1990, the county population was 30,000. And it's home to an annual daffodil festival. They take that very seriously. They are the self-proclaimed daffodil capital of America, which all got kicked off in the 1650s when daffodils were brought here, brought by some early settlers. And turns out that area was, I guess, really good ground for growing daffodils. I saw that Gloucester and I wondered how you were going to pronounce that. The way you said it, I was thinking it was the right way because I think of like Worcester County in Maryland that has a C in it that you would never read and think is Worcester County. Yeah, it's like one of those French words where if you look at it, you're never going to say it right. You just have to know how it's pronounced. So from Gloucester Point, if you cross the York River on the George P. Coleman Bridge, you're basically at the entrance of the Colonial Parkway. So again, just trying to get some geography down here. Now, turning back to Keith, he's the middle child out of five kids. His dad was a manager at the Anheuser-Busch plant in Williamsburg, which was like a big employer, especially back then. And Keith's mom, she was a stay-at-home mom, so she was around taking care of the kids, doing all that stuff, probably working harder than Keith's dad. Being a stay-at-home mom, toughest job in the world. For real. Uh, yeah, no doubt. As a boy, Keith and his siblings played outside. You know, they did very typical 1980s stuff. They were playing hide-and-go-seek. They were building forts, and they were just out there living life, playing till dark, that kind of stuff. I'm sure you can relate to that to an extent. And then as Keith got older, he really got into sailing. He liked to sail. And now this isn't Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous sailing. This is like a really tiny little sunfish sailboat. He'd take it out on the York River. And that was like his hobby. That's what he liked to do. And a lot of these kids that lived in that area, the river was something everybody kind of go down. You could hang out. You could go swimming. You could get on a boat, whatever. It just provided a source of entertainment, fun, place to hang out, things like that. Yeah, and sailboat fuel is still cheap today. That's right. One of the last things, I think it is taxed pretty heavily in Maryland, though. 
<laughs> Probably. Now, Keith's brother described him as one of his brothers, described him as a very sweet and compassionate person. His older sister, Joyce, has said that uh, he went to college at Christopher Newport University for computer science. Now, remember, this is 1988. So he's into technology. Like, this is a big thing for him. He's really into technology. And he's into it at a time, I'd say it was sort of, and you can speak to this better than I can because you're older than I am, but it wasn't like today where we all just, you know, we're ingrained in it. We live in it. We realize the value of it. I think in the late 80s, and to hear her describe some of the stories, they kind of looked at it like, oh, we're glad this makes you happy, but what is the point of all this? So he was on the cutting edge in that way, that, that he was interested in it. That's what he was going to school for. He had a, and you would speak to this better than I would, I don't know if it's pronounced VIC or V-I-C-20 Commodore computer. With a TV as a monitor. Yeah. And apparently this would have cost, this was not cheap. This was pretty expensive back then. But I remember the Commodores and I remember the Apple IIe. I used one of those in ninth grade. We didn't have them in the school, but as an office assistant, I remember the secretary would go down to the smoking lounge and uh, I'd type up the morning announcements on the Apple. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So Joyce, Keith's sister, she was on Bill Thomas's Mind Over Murder podcast in April 2023. They were talking about this case, about Keith's case. And she told some stories and she talked about how excited Keith was when CDs first came out and how he was telling everybody, you got to listen to this. The audio quality is incredible. And for, you know, any younger listeners, CD was what we had before everything went digital. Yeah, and before that was the cassette tape, which required you to rewind and fast forward and flip it over. And uh, there was no easy way to find where you were trying to go on that tape. And I agree with Keith. CDs were incredible. It was just amazing, the sound quality. Yeah, and I mean, for a CD, you don't need a pencil to, like, fix the tape ribbon if it gets messed up or whatever. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just I'll date myself a little Mm -hmm. bit. I know a little bit about the olden days, as they might be called. Now, Keith had a longtime girlfriend named Selena. They had started dating when she was 16 back in 1984. And in the book that I've referenced, it'll be in the show notes a lot. It's really good, exhaustive take on these cases. Selena says that she can't even remember her wedding anniversary with her current husband, but she remembers the day that she started dating Keith. And that was April 21st, 1984. Wow. Both the book and Keith's sister talk about how much Keith enjoyed the band U2, which was up and coming at the time. And Pink Floyd, he and Selena had waited outside overnight one night for tickets to see U2 in Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, Selena's talked about how they had this freedom that their parents, both parents, gave them to go places, to do things, you know, as teenagers, to stay out all night after prom. And they had this really good relationship with their parents where they didn't have to hide things and they had space to spend time together, do whatever. I think that's relevant because... Selena and Keith's sister, Joyce, said that Keith, he didn't go to the parkway and the Colonial Parkway and that he never, they didn't have a reason to, they didn't have to run off and hide if they wanted to spend time together alone. And, you know, if you you remember, Kathy and Becky were murdered in 1986. And then just a year after that, a year before this, David and Robin were murdered. And that was only a half hour away at Ragged Island. So We're not that much later in time. In the last two years, there's been these two double homicides with people out in these kind of lover's lane type situations or these secluded areas. Kids in that time, in that area, you know, they kind of really took that to heart. So Selena said, hey, listen, we didn't have a need to go parking. That wasn't something that was a part of what we needed to do. 
I think I remember seeing an interview with Keith's sister where she said that like right before this, they had had a conversation there in their house about these double homicides that had occurred right in that area on the Colonial Parkway. And they were just remarking about how crazy that was. So it, like I said, it sounds like they were very aware that there was something dangerous there. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Now, for graduation from high school, Keith's parents got him a red Toyota Celica. Uh, if you're not a car person, it's kind of like this little fun car. I mean, I think you graduate in high school and you get that kind of car. That'd be pretty sweet. And my understanding is he enjoyed it. He was very happy about it. You know, it meant a lot to him. He got vanity plates for it that read Keefs, like K-E-I-F-S. After high school, Selena went to Old Dominion University for nursing. And like I said, Keith was a student at Christopher Newport University. He was the first to go to college, and he chose CNU for its IT program, because again, that's what he was looking to get into. And He was the first one of the siblings or the first out of the family? My understanding is first in his family to go to college. Wow. Yeah, so it was a big deal that he went. And at that time, CNU was a little bit of a smaller school, but he chose it because of this IT program that it had. It was known for that. So it was a really good fit for him. Now, in April of 88, Keith and Selena agreed to take a break, something that they had done before. This wasn't like a new thing. They had taken some breaks before, but they always came back together. Selena was going to go see some friends the weekend that Keith disappeared. And Keith told her, I, you know, I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Part of this break that they agreed to, they said, oh, OK, well, we'll see some other folks while we're on this break. So that was part of the agreement. That wasn't like a weird thing. And they had done some things like this before where they'd have a break and then a very short period of time would pass. And it's almost like uh, cooler heads would prevail. They'd calm down and then get back together. This same weekend, Keith asked out a woman from his business class at school and her name was Cassandra Haley. Cassandra's father was in the Air Force and moved the family to Newport News for his retirement. She was the youngest of three girls. And even though her name was Cassandra, she rarely went by it. Instead, friends and family called her Sandra, Sandy, or Missy. Her older sisters apparently gave her the Missy moniker. And even though they can't remember the exact origins, they like to, or at least have made jokes that, that that's short for mistake. As the younger sibling, I can say that I've heard that more than once. Uh, no. Mom says it's like a happy accident, like Bob Ross and his little trees. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember, uh, in, in all seriousness, I think mom used to use some ridiculous phrase like that. All right, back to Missy. As a younger person, she was described as outgoing, uh, a friend to everybody. She was a cheerleader. She babysat. She coached gymnastics. She worked at a hair salon as a receptionist, and she worked at a local shoe store. She really liked to be busy. Apparently. And she was highly organized. And it makes sense to have all this stuff going on. She clearly could multitask and juggle a lot of obligations and responsibilities. Friends describe her in a glowingly warm and friendly way that even when she was mad, it didn't last long. And she really was never that scary. She was generous. There's stories about her lending money to coworkers and how she just cared for the people in her life. She really valued relationships. And her mom said she was just unique. She loved to watch football. And she had a secret relationship with a star football player in high school. Um, she also liked going to concerts, and one of her favorites was seeing Cindy Lauper. She liked listening to Prince and Pink Floyd, so she and Keith had Pink Floyd in common. The day after she graduated high school, she went to the Outer Banks with some friends, which was pretty common for folks who lived in that area. And then she ended up enrolling at CNU, but she wasn't really sure what she wanted to do moving forward, so she didn't declare a major freshman year. And her friend Susan Scott described her as caring, good-hearted, and fun-loving, just a great person. 
Cassandra didn't have a boyfriend in 1988. And given how busy she was, it makes sense, right? If I had that much going on, I don't know that I could balance a relationship on top of that. So she was single at the time that Keith had asked her out. Now, Keith and Cassandra went out on this date that was really more of a social friend date than a romantic one by all accounts. Everybody described this has really pointed that out, that it wasn't like this was supposed to be some like fancy date night at Applebee's kind of thing. This was more of just a couple of friends from college. We're going to go to the movies and we're going to go to this college party and we're just going to have a good time together. Keith and Selena, even though they're on a break, it sounds like it was just their usual sort of giving each other some space and deal. And they had even put an expiration period on their break. It was supposed to be a two-week break. Wow, not something. So I think it really just shows this is just the context of everything. Now, it was early April, and the weather was a bit chillier than normal. Remember, we're in southern Virginia, but it hasn't really warmed up. The high was barely 50, and it was even colder at night. And we're going to get back to why that matters in a minute. Keith left his parents' house, and he went to his older brother's place to borrow clothes and to get his brother to buy some beer for him. I've never borrowed your clothes. They were a tight-knit family. Chris is Keith's older brother who was happy to oblige him. So Keith, beer in hand, dressed in two-tone brown slacks, a white polo, and a brown and gray cardigan looking straight out of the 1980s, was ready for his date in his red Celica. And Cassandra was wearing some two-tone acid-washed blue jeans and a white button-up blouse. Are you having flashbacks right now? Is this taking you back? Absolutely. And I'm certain that those acid-washed blue jeans were peg-legged at the bottom. (laughs) that's just what you had to do. And as far as you barring my clothes, no, that could never happen because you couldn't pull off the style. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess hammer pants is a bit past me. That's fair. Now, and it's funny. The first time I saw there's a picture of Keith that's pretty widely circulated if you search his name and he's sitting, he's not in the red Celica. He's sitting in another car. I think it's like a white Honda and he's got like some 80s hair. It's, I don't even know how you describe it, but it's like poofy, but short. And he's got these kind of bigger glasses on and he's just like sitting there with his hand on the wheel. And in that picture, I felt like I could be looking at you in it. It was crazy just how the style and everything like that, just how similar that was. It really, it was jarring to me to see that. If we had known each other, we would have been friends. As I read Keith's story, like everything in the story is just check, check, check. Like we would have been friends, no doubt. Yeah. You know, as I was reading this, he reminded me a lot of you. Now, Cassandra had a 2 a.m. curfew, even though she was an adult and in college, she still lived with her parents and all the girls had talked about her sisters, how they had curfews as long as they lived there. And so Keith had indicated to her mother he would have her home at a reasonable time and was aware of the curfew. Now, their plan was to go to the movies and then to hit up this college complex party that was right across from CNU where they both went to school. And they showed up to the party and people noted that they were there, but they kind of did their own thing. So it wasn't like they were walking around the room, working it together. They were arm in arm, holding hands, making out, none of that kind of stuff. Instead, Keith was talking to a friend who was also friends with Selena and Cassandra was hanging out with her former secret boyfriend slash star football player and her best friend, Susan. So they found their people and were doing their own thing. Keith's friend recalled about how at the party, Keith was talking about Selena and how they were going to get back together. and how he missed her and that Keith didn't appear to be drinking and that he didn't seem like he had been, he wasn't holding a drink, and that he really didn't spend any time with Cassandra at the party at all. By all accounts, the rest of it just sounds like a typical college party. There wasn't anything crazy in any of the accounts I read. It really just sounds like exactly what you would expect for just a Saturday night college party hangout. They went to the party together, but not necessarily as a couple. Yeah, it really does seem like it was sort of this, we're just kind of social friends, whatever. Now, depending on which party goer you ask, they left the party somewhere between 1130 
and 2.15 in the morning, which obviously that's a pretty big gap. Now, the party was not that far from... Okay, I have lost track of 11.30 to 2.15 at a party here or there. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It's like... I've lost track of Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, it's totally fair. I think for the fact that these kids could narrow it down in that range, that gives us a pretty good indication. And Cassandra's parents' house is not far from where this party was. So if they had left anywhere around two at all, she would have been home right around her curfew. It makes sense. That's probably around the time that they leave. Now, Keith's Red Celica was found parked in a turnaround, a turnoff, right off the Colonial Parkway, about a mile from where Kathy's car was found. I remember Kathy and Becky are the victims in the very first case that we talked about. So that would have been back in 1986. Keith's car now is right off the Colonial Parkway in a turnaround, barely over a mile from where Kathy's car was found. Police find the car at 9 a.m. and report that the door was ajar. From the outset, we got to say, the investigators were park rangers and they did not handle the crime scene well at all, like even a little bit. They initially presume that this is just an abandoned car and they go through it like it's an abandoned car and they don't treat it at all like a crime scene. In the car, there's a pair of men's boots one of Cassandra's boots is on the passenger side floorboard. Almost all of Keith's clothes are in the back seat of the car, still inside the car at the very least. The keys were in the car. Cassandra's purse and her bra were in the car as well. Curiously, though, Cassandra's wallet was not in her purse. Keith's wallet was still in the car. It had $12 in it. And according to the investigators, it was in the back seat. But again, the way that they handled the crime scene, I, you can't put a whole lot of stock in that because I think it's at least reasonable or plausible that it could have been anywhere else in the car. And they inadvertently, while they were going through it, looking for identification and trying to figure out whose car it was and all that kind of stuff that they had moved things around. And I'm going to get more on that here in a minute. The park rangers were just looking at this as there's this car here. Did it maybe it broke down or something like that? Or yeah, who's somebody belong to? What do we it? do with it? Yeah. How do we get this car either back to its owner or out of here? Exactly. That's exactly right. Now, both families and even friends have said it didn't make sense for Keith and Cassandra to be at the parkway. Wait a minute. There have been two other double homicides in what the last two, two years, years before this. Yep. And yet the park rangers find this vehicle sitting here, and it doesn't occur to them that. Maybe it's maybe we should be careful. Maybe this is a crime scene. Maybe we should treat it like one until we know it's not. That's a great question. Sorry, Uh, it just dawned on me. Yeah, it's a little discouraging to say the least. So both Keith and Cassandra's friends said it really, in many ways, didn't make any sense for them to be at the parkway. It was out of the way for where they were and where they were going. They actually would have had to pass Cassandra's parents' house to go to the parkway. And there were other areas where they could have went to hang out or to have maybe some intimate alone time, if that was even like a thing. Because remember, by all accounts, these are just basically two friends who barely spend any time together at the party. So it's a little bit strange for friends and family. They've really pointed that out. And also, like we talked about earlier, right? Everybody, all these teenagers and the adults, everybody knew that these murders had happened. And so people were apprehensive about being, you know, on the parkway at night especially to stop and spend time there. It just for all of Keith and Cassandra's friends, none of them really buy that they would have went and parked there. According to one of Keith's friends, Lisa, who spoke to Keith at the party the night he went missing, the police never interviewed her. She contacted the FBI because she felt like she saw him 
pretty shortly before he disappeared, so they might want to talk to her. And she was told that somebody would come meet with her. But according to her, nobody from the FBI ever showed up to talk to her. Wow. So to this day, she says they never interviewed her about what happened. For me, at least, the most chilling detail from this whole story, a really an important piece of evidence for figuring out the timeline of events, comes from Keith's older brother, Chris. Now, remember, this is the same brother that Keith borrowed some, what would you say, some fly drip, as the kids would say nowadays, but some clothes from so that he could look nice on his date and who hooked him up with the beer. After Keith went to Chris's house, Chris left his house and went to Richmond. It's about an hour drive from where he lives. On his way home, it was around 2.30 in the morning. Chris is driving on the parkway. And he says that as he's driving on the parkway, he's getting pretty close to being back home in Gloucester. This van comes out of like a wooded picnic area and pulls out on the parkway and is driving really, really fast behind him, like speeding, catching up. The speed limit is 45. He estimates this van was probably doing 65 or 75 from where it was coming from as it was catching up to him. Now, he says he drives past the turnaround where Keith's car is found a few hours later. And Chris notices there's a car parked there. But I think with everything else going on, he just doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to the car. You got to remember, too, we're on the parkway, so it's really dark. It's not well lit. There's trees. There's no lights, all that kind of stuff. If you're thinking, how would he not know it's his brother's car? Super dark. You got this crazy van behind you. He just notices there's a car parked in the turnaround. And he said at the time, he's like chuckling. I bet I know what those people are doing. They're out there having alone time. But he doesn't recognize that it's his brother's car. So once he drives past the car and the turnaround that the van behind him slowed down and then did a U-turn, he didn't really pay attention to whether the van pulled in where the turnaround was or if it pulled in somewhere else or what it did. He was just kind of like, well, that was really strange. And it stood out to him because he thought, you know, it's 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning on the parkway. This van's driving like a maniac, pulling out of this place. It's just real bizarre. Later that morning, he would find out that this car that he had seen in the turnaround was most likely Keith's car. A couple other drivers notice Keith's car. One drives by around five in the morning and just sees it there and keeps going. Another around six in the morning. And these drivers are found out later in the investigation as they came forward and said, yeah, I saw the car. I didn't really see anything else noteworthy. Then, and this is just, it's just mind-bogglingly, it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around and put myself in these people's shoes. Keith's father is driving on his way to work because he works in Williamsburg at the plant. So he drives past this turnaround. It's around seven o'clock in the morning. He's running late and he notices Keith's car and he sees it. Now it's daylight out. He sees this is Keith's car. So he stops. Remember, Keith's got those vanity plates. So even if you were like, gee, maybe it's somebody else's red Celica. Once you see that license plate, you're going to know that's your kid's car. So he stops and he finds the driver's door slightly ajar. And this makes him kind of nervous. He says the driver's seat was folded forward when somebody's getting in or out of a back seat. So it's folded forward like that. Right, because it's a two-door vehicle mm -hmm. with a back seat. So you got to flip the front seat forward to get in the back. And it's like a little sporty car. So in case you don't know that, it's a cool little sports car from the 80s. He also noticed Keith's gold watch was on the console between the seats. He didn't see the keys in the ignition or anywhere in the car. He didn't search it super heavily, but he did note a lot of things. He saw some beer cans in the back. He noticed that there was a bunch of clothes in the car. You know, he's running late for work. He sees this and he thinks, all right, well, your mind doesn't immediately go to the worst thing, I guess. So he just assumes, oh, they're teenagers, they're college kids. They must have gotten into something and I got to get to work. About an hour later, a park ranger shows up and he says that he finds the keys in the ignition. Now, a task force officer who's spoken about this case after the fact has said that the park rangers were just clearly in over their heads and that even they admitted that initially they thought this was an abandoned car like we talked about. And that's how they treated it. 
So this task force officer has said that he presumes that they went through the car looking for, like you said, indications, who is it? What do we do with it? And then once they realized, oh, this is bad, they tried to put things back the way they found them, but that's only going to be so good. You're probably not going to do a very good job of that. What's interesting about it is the park ranger's initial theory that they fed to the media was all these kids were here messing around and then they must have just went down the embankment and went skinny dipping. That's why all their clothes are here. So they looked at what they had and they said, let's come up with something to fit this narrative. And the thing they came up to fit the narrative was, even though it's 40 degrees or whatever and the water's freezing cold and Cassandra's sister said she would never get in any water where she couldn't see the bottom, let alone the freaking parkway at night. And it's freezing cold outside. Also, like where they parked, my understanding is to get to the water from where they were would have been really difficult. It was kind of like a steep embankment and it wasn't an easy path to the water where there were some other places to stop and be pretty close by where that wasn't the case. So if you really were going to go do that, that would not be the place to stop and go do that. You'd go to one of these other places. Yeah. You lost me on the skinny dipping at it's April and the temperature was like 50s during the day. So there is no way. Yeah. It's freezing. Yeah. I agree. They just come up with this. They give it to the media right away. And everybody is just, I mean, the families, everybody is like, are you serious? Is this a joke? Right. I mean, it was just as plausible that they were ice fishing. Now, you had asked about what it was that got the FBI involved. So remember, this is occurring on the parkway, so there's federal jurisdiction there. That's why the FBI was involved in the first case with Kathy and Becky. My understanding is the park rangers didn't actually call the FBI. Instead, there was an FBI agent listening to his radio at about 7 o'clock in the morning on Monday, April 11th, and he hears this lead news story that rescuers are searching the Colonial Parkway for bodies of a young couple whose car was found yesterday at the York River Overlook. Authorities fear the pair may have gone skinny dipping and drowned. So again, the park rangers are following their narrative, right? And this agent from the FBI hears this story and he's like, oh my gosh, York River Overlook, this is connected like this. We need to get involved. So he heads down to the federal building and he finds another agent and he says, you got to get up here. We got to talk about this. Since Kathy and Becky's murders, there had been a leadership change in the FBI in Norfolk. I can't believe the media ran with a story of, we think they went skinny dipping and drowned. And drowned. Yeah, it's just nuts. Like, like they've got a weather person there at the news station, I would assume, that would be saying. You um, just walk outside. It's cold out. It's crazy. As this agent reports to his command that there's a case here and I think we need to get involved. Command agrees, the FBI leadership agrees, and they weren't convinced it was a murder just yet, because at this point, there's just a pair of missing young people, but they felt that it was important to go ahead and send some FBI agents to the scene. Now, the FBI agents who were involved in this, they said the park rangers were just odd from the jump, the way that they handled the car and the way they reacted to the FBI's presence. Some agents have said that the park rangers were defensive and almost acted like suspects in a way. It was just very odd because typically in law enforcement, brothers in blue, there's that sort of professional courtesy interaction, especially this wasn't like, you know, the FBI is coming in and they're taking over for some small town police forces or federal park rangers or federal FBI agents. Maybe the park rangers were really just that dumbfounded that anyone would believe any foul play had transpired because in their mind, they truly thought this was a skinny dipping incident. Yeah. Which you got to be special to hold on to that theory for more than 
a minute. Maybe they just didn't want to be wrong. Yeah. And part of their reasoning behind that was the park rangers, whenever they started to wonder, oh, okay, maybe this is not. Once they realized well, they, they got a hold of the families, they say, oh, this isn't an abandoned car. These people are missing. They brought some scent dogs down. And according to the park rangers, which again, it's an open case. So we don't have the case files. We haven't seen the actual reports, but according to the media reports and what was going on and what the park rangers were telling the media at that time, the scent dogs basically left from the car and they followed down this embankment and then went down by the river. Take that for what it's worth. And who knows what exactly that means or what could have happened. Could have they been down there and then they weren't? Could they have been led down there and executed like David and Robin? I mean, it's hard to say. But I also wonder if the crime wasn't committed somewhere completely different and then the car was left there. Well, given that all the family and people that know both of these victims say they would have had no reason to be on that parkway that night, certainly sounds that way. Yeah, and it just doesn't make sense that they would go past her house to go to this parkway to then come back. And depending on what time they leave the party, could they have been hanging out somewhere else? Sure, I think that makes sense. And then it makes you wonder if whoever, I don't know, there's lots of questions, and we'll get into that in our episode where we talk about all of these combined. So here we are. It's been 35 years. And still, did they search the water? No answers. They did. They did. And they, and to this day, obviously, it's still a missing persons case because they've never found Keith or Cassandra's body. And I'll say one thing that Joyce, Keith's brother, and Bill Thomas, who's Kathy's brother from the first case, in that April 2023 podcast episode where they're talking about Keith's case, it is clear from listening to them, that their position is that there is evidence that exists in both cases that could be tested that could potentially help to at least, if not solve, at least point a direction in the case that hasn't been tested. Why hasn't it been tested in 35 years? That's the million-dollar question. And to listen to Bill Thomas talk about this, you can hear rightfully the frustration in his voice. And I think he's very professional. And he handles himself in a way that it's not wouldn't probably be able to handle it as well as he has. He discussed how there was a question of funding and this and that. There's a lab out there that can test degraded DNA, which is a subspecialty within DNA testing. That's a private lab that has offered to test the evidence from all of these cases free of charge. And the FBI, according to Bill, has indicated that, well, we can't do that because that's some kind of gift. It's just it's nonsense. It's bureaucratic nonsense. And that's where, you know, I think. All right, so we're not going to test it, but we're not going to let anybody else test it either. Right, even though there's these other people who that's what they specialize in and they're willing to do it for free because this case is 35 years old and these people deserve at least some an attempt to find some answers and maybe, I don't know, just a measure of closure. It's ridiculous. I believe I heard, and tell me if you heard differently, but I believe that Keith's sister, Joyce, said that she hyphenates her last name to keep the call as part of her last name, just so that there's always an open link and has for these last 35 years, so that there's always an open link so that she can be found if Keith is found or some information is. And I believe their brother maintains the original family phone number and has for all these years, so that obviously in the beginning, so that Keith could call home if need be, and now just to make sure that the link is still open. No, you're absolutely right. Think too, man, just the weight of that, like living every day. It would be awful to lose somebody that you care about, especially in such a horrific way, as like Bill has lost his sister Kathy. But then you think about Joyce and her brother, and it's like just waiting 
you're constantly just waiting for that other foot to drop. And then to know that the resources that the Federal Bureau of Investigation has, and I get that these are cold cases, but they deserve to be worked. And the fact that, like you said, 35 years and they still haven't tested, it's just uncalled for. And that's where I see talking about a case like this, I think is really important. And I hope that, you know, if you're listening, you think that's awful and I'm not from there or I don't know anything or whatever. Okay, fine. But guess what? You got a voice. Reach out, contact somebody and say, hey, why, what are you guys doing about this? Why is this not getting done? You know, eventually, if enough people make enough noise, you know, and bring light to this, I think that's what it's going to take to get some movement on it. It's a shame that that's what it takes because it should just be being done because it should be done, not because so many people have to make a bunch of noise. If you know anything about what might have happened to these people or you saw anything that night, the following morning, it might even be a small clue. By all means, please call your local FBI field office, call the Norfolk FBI field office, or certainly Bill Thomas, the mm -hmm. brother of Kathy Thomas, who was killed there a couple years before. And we'll have his information in the show notes. That's right. And now, the perfect crime, not these idiots, stupid criminal brothers. For today's segment of Brothers in Crime, not the ones that do the podcast, but the ones that commit the crimes, we've got from the New York Post, the headline reads, New Jersey teens caught dumping murder victim in Pennsylvania woods after leaving hazard lights on. What do you think about that? Wait, what? These guys are dumping a body and they leave the hazard lights on? You got to follow the rules, right? So if you pull off on the side of the road, you should put your hazard lights on, right? I mean, that just makes sense. They're just being courteous citizens. This is dumb as shit. I know what happened, though. These people from New Jersey, so they were looking for a jug handle to try and make the turn. It had to be what happened to get where they could be. For sure. Yeah, I mean, they definitely didn't make any lefts on this trip. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so we've got, uh, let's see, the New York Post reports Anthony Gamble, 19, and Joshua Gamble, 17. So to be fair, their prefrontal cortex is not fully formed yet. They're not 25, but they are, according to this reporting, going to be charged as adults. Anthony's 19, so that makes sense. But Josh, who's only 17. They report he will be charged as an adult. So they were taken into custody after uh, Pennsylvania state troopers pulled over to check on what they assumed were disabled vehicles on the side of the road. And this happened in uh, Richland Township in Bucks County. These cops, they walk up to this car. It's a Subaru and an Audi. And it's after midnight. And they find Josh just chilling on the ground in the woods. And he's got a glove and a bloody shoe. So they detain him. And then his brother, Anthony, he's running towards the car and they see that he's got some bloodstained clothing on and he's carrying gloves and he was um, pretty quickly arrested. Dumbass Gen Z, 17 and 19. They're trying to ditch this body. They don't take just one car and leave the hazard lights on. They got two cars out there. Two cars, hazard lights. Yep, absolutely. Bloody clothing, running around the woods, all the evidence. So then, unsurprisingly, the next thing troopers found was a dead man's body in the woods, not so far from the Audi. And they found that he appeared to have some stab wounds about his head, neck, upper chest, and arm. And that was according to the prosecuting attorney for Bucks County. Both cars, the victim, the knife, they were all found within 100 feet of each other. We're going to take the positive angle on this. Thank God for stupid criminals. That's true. The police work in this case was, I mean, it's as easy as it gets. I bet they had to go back and think this one through because it just is too dumb to be real. The cops had to be like shaking their heads that I know I would be. I would think this is way too flipping obvious. It can't be what's going on. What am I missing? For sure. It is weird. And so as a result of this strange activity, the teens have been charged with criminal homicide, conspiracy, possession of an instrument of crime, and tampering with evidence. I hope they got something better than common core math in prison. 
The disappearance and presumed murder of Keith and Sandy was the third of four double homicides that took place in relatively close proximity in less than three years, commonly referred to as the Colonial Parkway murders. In the next episode, we'll explore the case of Daniel and Anna Maria, the fourth and final double homicide case of the Colonial Parkway murders. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. And then there's other words that nobody can say, like Worcestershire. I think it's Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire. That's right. Exactly. <laughs>